Well, today we are going to be continuing the series that I began uh, probably about a month or so ago in regards to trials and why is it that trials happen. Now, over the last few sermons, you know, we've looked at five reasons why it is that trials take place in our lives. And what I want to do today is bring this series to to a close by looking at a few other of the reasons why it is that trials happen. I think with all that's gone on, not just here at this church, but just globally in understanding in regards to the providence of God as it pertains to trials is important. So we are going to spend this day continuing and examining why it is that trials take place. Now, before we begin, let's go to our God in prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful for this Sabbath day that you have given unto us and this time that we get to spend in your word examining something that um, your word does speak on, which is trials, affliction, And Lord, being that you are a sovereign God, you are in control of all things. um, We know that there is meaning, there is purpose behind the affliction, the trials that take place. So God, I pray that we may seek to to learn and understand in our own lives, you know, the purpose behind um, certain afflictions that you send us, trials that you send us. And Lord, I pray that you may enable me to be able to to speak clearly today as it pertains to this, Lord. So grant unto all of us here, Lord, eyes and ears to to listen, to hear, to see, God, what your word tells us as it pertains to this topic. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, before we move on to discuss a few more of those reasons why it is that trials take place, What I want to do first is just quickly review some of the things that we've talked about because it has been um, a little while since I last spoke. So as it pertains to trials, as it pertains to affliction, one of the first points that I brought up as to why it is that affliction may take place is because we've sinned against God and he is this he's disciplining us. If you recall, Proverbs three, verses 11 and 12. Solomon says, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. So we may not like to be disciplined by God, but the reality is, if we are his child, he will not hesitate to take out his spiritual rod and correct us when we go astray. The afflictions that we oftentimes deal with are the direct result of sin in our lives. And, you know, rather than God treat us as illegitimate children, he treats us as his precious children. It may seem unfair to us believers to be treated in our eyes harshly by God when it appears as though the wicked, well, they can sin without any evident or apparent consequence. But the reality is that the fact that we are being disciplined by him and unbelievers are getting away with their sins as we see it. See, that's a sure sign that he truly does love and care for us and also that he is storing up judgment for the wicked. Hebrews 12 verses 7 and 11 through 11 tells us, 
It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So he's saying if you don't get disciplined, it is because you are not his children. Verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, who have been disciplined by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. David concurs. He says in Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The affliction brought upon by God, David deemed good. Not because he enjoyed the affliction, because what person enjoys affliction? But because it corrected him and brought him back to obeying the law of God. So that was the first point that we had looked at. The second reason that we saw as it pertains to why trials happen was that sometimes we might be being tested by God. Proverbs 17, verse 3, Solomon tells us, The refining pot is for silver and furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. And then Proverbs 20, verse 6, Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? Many people will say that they are faithful followers of Jesus. Many people will cry out, Lord, Lord. But are they really? Many people will say that they will never waver from their convictions. But is that true? Oftentimes, God will bring about trials in our lives to test our faith, to see whether the faith we claim we have is truly genuine. And, you know, a passage that comes to my mind, I bring it up because I was reading it not too long ago, comes from Judges chapter 2, starting in Verse 18, well, we read this, when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers and following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I will also no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So he allowed the nations to say, to test Israel, will you keep my commandments? First Peter, verses 3 through 7, Peter says, blessed be. And remember, this is a letter written to a people that are being persecuted. 
in Rome. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that, why? So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So then oftentimes God will send trials our way to test us, to confirm are we truly believers. And then there was the third point that we looked at. Sometimes God is using us as a testimony for someone else. You know, sometimes the trials that we go through aren't necessarily exclusively for us, but for the benefit of others. You know, in our individualistic and narcissistic culture that we are in, we tend to forget that we are a small section of a, the grand story that God has written out. Now, while we may not see the purpose for certain events in our lives, it is connected to a much grander story. And that trial that you are faced with may be something to where God is using it as a means to encourage or warn others. And then we saw the first, fourth point, which is that sometimes God may send trials our way to teach us contentment. Paul writes in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 14. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. It is very, very difficult to be content when everything goes your way. If every single desire that you had was fulfilled, it will be nearly impossible to be satisfied with what you already have. Being as the things of this world is not our ultimate treasure, God will oftentimes allow for trials to take place to teach us contentment. Sometimes God may take things away from us to teach us to be thankful for what we already have. Once a person truly understands contentment and learns how to be content, it is very difficult for that person to be tempted and to sin because they already have everything that they need. And the last point that we looked at is that God is reminding us that Christ and our salvation is what is ultimate in our lives. And sometimes he may bring about trials to remind us of that. Philippians 1 verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For us as Christians, Jesus Christ and our salvation in him is our most treasured possession. Nothing else matters when you have Christ. 
If you lose everything and you still have Christ, you will have all that you need. Now, that sounds like something we would all agree to, but far too often we become too attached to the things of this world, like the rich young ruler. We have it too good in this life, and to give it up for the sake of Jesus is not something that many of us are willing to do. We'll say that we can do it, but when push comes to shove, most of us will act like the rich young ruler and be unwilling to let go of the pearls of this world in order to obtain the pearl of great price. And if we are Christian, what God will do, being as we oftentimes will be unwilling ourselves to let go of those pearls, is God himself will oftentimes remove those other pearls in order for us to remember that what we have in Jesus Christ is far greater and far more valuable. So, these are the five points that we've already looked at. Now, today we're going to be looking at three other points, three other reasons why it is that God will bring about trials and affliction in our lives. So, the sixth point that I want to look at today, I spent some time talking about, is oftentimes God will bring about trials in our lives because he is strengthening us. And not only is he strengthening us, But he wants you to know where that strength comes from. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. And I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 26 through 31. Again, this is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 26 through 31. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. There are times where our trials are a means by which God will strengthen us. By our own ability, we may grow weak and weary, yet through God's hands, we are strengthened. Sometimes we have to literally wait on the Lord in order to be strengthened. Why? Well, so that we can give glory to him and not act like so many people do in glorifying themselves. An example of this can be found in the book of Isaiah. When you look at the king of Assyria, uh, Sennacherib, in Isaiah 37, verses 24 to 25, we read this. Through your servants, you have reproached the Lord and you have said, now listen to how Sanitarum speaks. 
With my many chariots, I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses, and I will go to its highest peak, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank waters, and with the sole of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Note the pride, the arrogance, glorifying himself, not realizing or understanding that the ability for him to do that was not because of him, but because of God. Matthew Henry commenting on Isaiah 40, he says this, many a times, God gives the power to the faint, to those who are ready to faint away. And to those that have no might, he not only gives, but increases strength, as there is no more occasion for it. Many out of bodily weaknesses are wonderfully recovered and made strong by the providence of God. And many that are feeble in spirit, timorous and faint-hearted, unfit for services and sufferings, are yet strengthened by the grace of God with all might in the inward man. To those who are sensible of their weakness and ready to acknowledge they have no might, God does in a special manner increase strength. For when we are weak in ourselves, then we are strong in the Lord. Now, the last part of what Matthew Henry writes here that I think is very important for us to consider. To those who are sensible of their weaknesses and ready to acknowledge they have no might. That is, those who admit that in and of themselves, they are not strong and depend upon God for their strength. God grants them strength. God is jealous for his glory. And those who are willing to humble themselves so as to give glory to God, God will strengthen. Jesus himself said in Luke 14, verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew Henry, again, he writes, those who trust to their own sufficiency and are so confident of it that they neither exert themselves to the utmost nor seek unto God for his grace are the youth and the young men who are strong, but are apt to think themselves stronger than they are. And they shall faint and be weary. Yea, they shall utterly fail in their services, in their conflicts and under their burdens. They shall soon be made to see the folly of trusting to themselves. But those that wait on the Lord, who make conscience of their duty to him and by faith rely upon him and commit themselves to his guidance, shall find that God will not fail them. See, it is easy for us to rely on our own strengths. Especially if you're gifted in a specific area. If you're smart, you might rely on your intelligence. If you're attractive, you may rely on your looks. If you are physically strong, you might rely upon your strength. However, see, all of those strengths, they have an end to them. They will at some point fail us. Looks can fade away. A stroke can eliminate a person's mental capacity. A sickness can shrivel muscular strength. If you were relying exclusively on your own strengths, on your own abilities, apart from God, you will be disappointed at some point. However, when you lean on God 
and humbly remember that even the strengths that you have come from God, when your personal strength is fading and lacking, God will supply you with more strength. God is jealous again for his glory and wants for us to never forget who to give glory to. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why when you look at the scriptures, in particular, when you look at the prophets, you oftentimes see that God uses men who have some sort of of failing, of shortcoming. For example, we read in the scriptures, when you look at the book of Exodus, that Moses was was a stutterer. Yet God used him, an imperfect vessel, imperfect in speaking ability, to lead Israel out of Egypt, to bring them through the wilderness. So continuing on with the idea of the fact of God strengthening us, I want to kind of give an example as to how it is that God can use trials to strengthen us. So... For those of you who are familiar with weightlifting and and kind of like the, I guess, the science, so to speak, behind it, you know, when you lift weights, what you're doing is you're creating minor tears in your muscles, which is why you feel sore the next day. Like you literally tore your muscles. But in making those minor muscle tears, when the muscle heals, it actually becomes bigger and stronger. So. To put it another way, in order for you to become physically bigger and physically stronger, you have to put your muscles through physical affliction first. If you don't, your muscles actually atrophy and become weaker and smaller. Likewise, when it comes to our faith, oftentimes for our strength to be or faith to be strengthened, God has to put us through through trials. Sometimes we have to be put in a situation that is uncomfortable and difficult in order for us to lean on God and have him grant us the strength to move forward. Again, I'm going to keep on repeating this. God is jealous for his glory. Way too often we take credit for things that God did. If we pass the test, well, it's because we're geniuses. If we get a promotion at work, well, it's because, you know, we put the work in. We are apt to glorify ourselves for our accomplishments, and we forget who it was that gave us the ability to accomplish those feats. For the believer, God is always going to want for us to glorify him. So what he will sometimes do is put us in a situation where we have no choice but to rely on him for strength and ability so that when we succeed and when we make it through, it is abundantly clear who it was who strengthened us. And I think a great example of this can be found in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 7, with Gideon and the 300 men. And I'll just read the first eight verses in Judges 7, verses 1 through 8. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. 
Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them there for you. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midians into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into the hands, their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So we see in this account, Gideon along originally with an army of about 32,000 men ready to battle the Midianites. Now, even with the 32,000, let's be clear, it wasn't as though they had a decided advantage. It wasn't as though it was 32,000 versus 32,000. Nah. When you look at Judges 8, we see that there was at least 100,000 men that they were going up against. So again, it wasn't as though they, they had a decided advantage. They were already outnumbered. But then God saw that that 32,000 was too much in, in, um, in his eyes because he knew that they would be boasting about their own power in being able to, to win. And you know what? As, as a guy, because what, what would that be, three to one? I could easily see a bunch of men just thinking highly of themselves and thinking, oh, yeah, you know, my kung fu style and all of that. Yeah, I was able to take down three men by myself. So I could easily see a bunch of boastful, prideful, arrogant, macho men, you know, claiming, oh, yeah, now we totally destroyed those 100,000 on our own. So what did God do? He wanted to narrow it so that it would be abundantly clear that, yeah, you might boast in maybe being able to beat, you know, three men to your one, but you're not going to be able to boast if it's 100 to three or three to 100. So he dwindles down the army to 300 men, a number so small that by their own power, it would have been impossible for them to defeat the enemy. No Israelite would have thought that they defeated the Midianites on their own. They would have had no choice but to direct the glory to God. So oftentimes, this is what God does. Force us into a position Remove our strengths, our abilities, so that our physical strengths, our physical abilities, so that when God brings us through, we have no choice but to glorify God. Because it wasn't us that did it, but him through us. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. This is Paul talking about his thorn in the flesh. Praying three times for God to remove it. And then Paul writes in verse 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
God's power is perfected in our weakness. When we are most weak, God's power is at most displayed. So, sometimes we go through trials so that God himself can strengthen us, supply us with strength, and then we can acknowledge and know who it was that gave us the strength. The next reason why sometimes God may bring about trials and affliction is because oftentimes God might be preparing us for something. And now this point sort of ties in with the earlier point about God strengthening us. You know, many times in the sovereign plan of God, he calls us to a certain task or certain ministry. However, in order for us to accomplish what he is calling for us to do, we must first be tried and built up. You know, just like if a person were to join the military. So when a person joins the military, the officers don't just give the recruit a gun and then ship him off to war as soon as they enlist. But rather, they train him and put him through some sort of affliction to prepare him for the war that he will be a part of. And if he didn't go through the training, he would not be ready for combat. Likewise, in order for us to be true and faithful warriors for God's army, God oftentimes will train us through affliction. We may be put through certain trials to see whether or not we are ready for the real fight. Sometimes the trials reveal certain flaws in ourselves that we need to correct in order to become an effective vessel for God. Sometimes the trials make clear to others around an individual that, you know what, they are not really who they say they are, but in actuality, they're an imposter. So let's look at an example of not an imposter in the scriptures, but someone who went through trials and was strengthened and, and by it, and not only strengthened by it, but was prepared for something greater. And I'm talking about the Apostle Peter. See, the Apostle Peter was definitely a person, when you read through the Gospels, who he thought more of himself than what was reality many times. On the day that Jesus was going to be betrayed, Jesus told the disciples what was going to happen and how they were all going to scatter once Jesus was arrested. Now, Peter obviously doesn't think that he's going to do something that cowardly. And he tells Jesus, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter, in his mind, was not a coward. He was ride or die. Nah, he was clearly naive to the amount of cowardice that was still in him. Well, that cowardice became clear after Jesus was arrested, where on three instances, Peter had an opportunity to be ride or die. And three times, Peter denied Jesus. Three times, Peter was tested, and he failed each of those point times. One time, it was a little girl that came up to him and asked, wait, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And he was too cowardly to stand up to a little girl. A clear flaw in Peter was exposed at that point. He still possessed the fear of man that led him to deny Jesus rather than risk suffering in his name. Now, the text indicates that, you know, after the rooster crowed and he realized what he had done, he went out and wept. So now, 
the scriptures don't indicate to us what Peter did after the fact, whether he self-reflected and he resolved to no longer be be a coward. So I am not going to try and delve into needless speculation or anything like that. But I do want to point out that when we continue to read about Peter's ministry in the book of Acts, outside of the one incident with the Judaizers, which Paul does rebuke him on, what we see coming from Peter is not a man who is a coward anymore. What we see is a man who was willing to be arrested for the name of Christ, if you read through the book of Acts. What we see, according to church tradition, is a man who ends up dying for the cause of Christ, being crucified upside down because he did not feel it was, he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. Ultimately, what we see is a man who, renouncing any confidence in his own flesh and courage, leaned on God and the courage that was supplied through the Holy Spirit. So even though he was initially a coward at the onset of his calling, he did not die a coward. So he was being prepared. Now, the last point that I want to look at in regards to trials and why they happen. And I think an important point for us to consider is that oftentimes God brings about affliction in our lives. God brings about trials in our lives to teach us patience. You know, oftentimes the purpose that God has in mind when he brings about trials is to teach us to be patient. I mean, this is so important in our day and age because we live in a time where we want everything now. We want everything to happen immediately. And most of us have lost the ability to sit and wait on the Lord. We want everything now. We want for our circumstances to change now. We want for the difficulties to end now. And when things don't happen as quickly as we would like, what do we do? We complain. We murmur. We grumble. We begin to question God. We become bitter. Many of us, dare I say, and I'll include myself in this, we start to sin in our impatience. David tells us in Psalm 37, verses 7 through 8, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. You know, in our eyes, when we see the wicked doing well in their wickedness, we have the tendency to, to get upset. I mean, you know, we start to question, is God's way really the right way? Is it worth it to really follow God's law? Because, man, the wicked aren't doing it, and, man, they seem to be prospering. Nothing bad happens to them. And then all of a sudden, we start to think that, you know what, man, maybe the best course of action is to, now, we wouldn't put it this way, but this is how we act in our actions, to be wise in our own eyes. To start doing like the wicked people around us. And in this psalm, David is telling believers to patiently wait for the Lord and to not become upset over the apparent victory of the enemy. David's son, Solomon, tells us in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 8 through 9, The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. 
What God oftentimes is trying to cultivate within us is endurance. And that is something that can't happen without patience. Now, in my first sermon on trial, I talked a little bit about endurance. But what I want to do now is elaborate a bit further because endurance and patience go hand in hand. Now, we're going to look at a couple of definitions. Um, If we look at Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the word endure, the definition that they give us is this, to remain firm under suffering or misfortune without yielding. And then the definition that they give for patient is bearing pains or trials calmly or without complaint. Now, if we go to the 1828 definition, we read this, endure, to bear with patience, to bear without opposition or sinking under pressure. And then patient, having the quality of enduring evils without murmuring or fretfulness, sustaining afflictions of body or mind with fortitude, calmness or Christian submission to the divine will. Now, do you notice how in both definitions, endurance and patience rely on one another? In order to endure something, you have to have patience. And in order to be patient, you're going to have to endure. Second Corinthians verses one through six, Paul tells us, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. What's interesting is that Paul notes how the affliction is for our comfort and salvation. There is a sanctifying element in patiently enduring a wrong. In our sinful nature, when something, when someone wrongs us, what do we want? Revenge. Immediately. We want justice to be enacted yesterday. When we don't see that justice is being enacted, we start to wonder whether we have to take matters into our own hands. Much too often when we do that, we often handle the matter in a sinful way. We let our pride and anger get the best of us. And as a result, God is not glorified. And many times the situation grows worse. James chapter five, verses seven through 11 James tells us this, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the right door or right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We counted those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So be patient. And then he tells us that we have the examples of the prophets and how they patiently endured. And he says that we count those blessed who endured. Not those who give up. Not those who decide halfway through the trial, you know what, this isn't worth it. We count those blessed who endured. Now I think a great example that we have in the scriptures 
of a person who endured. I know he, James mentions Job here, but I think another example that we can all look to is Joseph. We read in Psalm 105, verses 16 to 22, and God called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions, to imprison his princes at will, that he might teach his elders wisdom. You know, of all the people, of all the people um, who spent a lifetime being unjustly afflicted, I think it's fair to say that Joseph was one of those people. Out of jealousy, his brother sold him into slavery. While he was there, he was accused of raping the wife of a powerful figure and was thrown in jail. While in jail, he ended up staying there much longer than he was hoping because the cupbearer just forgot to mention to the Pharaoh how it is that he knew that he would be freed. So of all the people to complain about injustice, to gripe about wrong, it would have been Joseph. Of all the people to try and take matters into their own hands, it would have been Joseph. Of all the people to seek revenge on his perpetrators, it would have been Joseph. But that's not what Joseph did. He entrusted himself to God and he leaned on God. He endured patiently. As a result, although it took many, many years, which is something that many of us don't want to hear, the reality that sometimes in our affliction we may have to endure not for a day, not for a few weeks, not for a few months, but maybe a few years. Well, after many years, Joseph was not only released from prison, but also given a position that put him second in command behind Pharaoh. And then rather than seeking vengeance, when Joseph's brothers were before him, repentant, he forgave them. Through the affliction that Joseph endured, Joseph learned patience. Lamentations 3, verses 25 to 28, Jeremiah writes, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since God has laid it on him. It is good to wait silently for the salvation of the Lord. Not walk around moaning, groaning. Not walk around trying to take matters into our own hands. David writes in Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and will trust in the Lord. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Patiently. 
And God heard me. He heard my cry. He didn't abandon him. But we are impatient. And so often, because we're impatient, as I said, so as I already said, when we take matters into our own hands instead of just trusting upon God, so often we make things worse. When all we had to do was just trust in God and be patient. James tells us in James 1, verses 2 to 3, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You know, you have to go through something to learn how to endure. It's as simple as that. You gain endurance through enduring. You learn patience by patiently waiting. You can't learn patience or endurance without having to go through enduring something or waiting patiently. You can't skip the process. And being that one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. It really does make sense that God is seeking to cultivate patience in his children. Through patience, we learn to trust in the Lord and not lean on our own understanding. Through patience, we learn not to attempt to use carnal means to fix spiritual matters. Through patience, we learn to humbly accept the affliction God brings in our lives because we know that it is for our good. Through patience, we are able to see the power of God at work in a way that gives him ultimate glory. Our God is a God who desires that he be glorified. He knows ultimately what must be done in order that he receive the glory due him. Sometimes God is glorified through the strength he provides for us when we need it. Other times he is glorified in allowing us to patiently endure a trial so that when he acts, we can rejoice in him. There is so much more that I could say regarding trials that come our way and why it is that they happen. As a matter of fact, if you were to look at my study notes and preparing for this series, I had, I think, another like 10 reasons that I came up with as to why trials happen. But I'm not going to go through, you know, all of those points. I'm going to end the series here for now. Because ultimately, my goal in this series was not necessarily to exhaust every single reason for trials, because that would be impossible. But my goal was to show that the trials and the afflictions that come about in our lives have purpose. They are not random and they're not meaningless. So when you are going through a difficult trial or period of affliction, don't despair. Please remember that what you are going through was specifically ordained by God for you. And if you are his child, please remember that it was specifically ordained by God for you to benefit you. Paul tells us in Romans 8 verse 28 that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So that means all things work together for good, not for evil or wrong, but for good. So that means that your affliction will work out for your good. 
being that we know that your trial or affliction will work out for your good, instead of falling into depression or despair, seek after God. Dive into his word. Pray without ceasing. Examine your life. Learn from your trials and your afflictions. Don't allow for your trials to bring you down and draw you away from God. But let it be a means to lift you up and draw you closer to him. Don't waste the trial that God has ordained for you in depression or anger. So often we allow ourselves to become bitter and angry in our affliction. We allow for sin to destroy us in our affliction. And we waste the affliction that God sends our way by allowing it to tear us away from God. Don't do that. Take advantage of it and let it be a means for you to grow in your faith and to become the child of God that God has called you to be. He ordained it for your good, so seek to try and learn what good it is that God is desiring to work in your affliction. Don't waste your trial. Don't waste your affliction. If you do that, you've allowed for Satan to defeat you. Rather, get to the point in your affliction where in learning from it and growing from it, you could be like David in Psalm 119 and say, it is good that I was afflicted. So, I'm going to end with these words. Don't waste your trial. Don't waste your affliction. Learn from it. Grow from it. Be sanctified through it. Don't waste your affliction. Let's now go to the Lord our God in prayer.